Christians are being deformed into anxious, joyless, untethered people by following unbiblical cultural rituals. Thankfully, we have a rich heritage of sacred practices that shape individuals, families, and churches into fully formed worshipers so we can glorify God and enjoy Him forever as we live life in the liturgy. But what is liturgy? Why is it important? What's the deal with all these readings, prayers, songs, and stuff like that? What's actually going on here? Well, we want to help explain some of that the best that we can to you astute and inquisitive followers and worshipers of Jesus. Today's episode is actually the second in a series of episodes in which we are endeavoring to break down each piece of the liturgy and explain its ins and outs and significance. So if you didn't catch our last conversation, pause and go back and listen to the podcast entitled Covenant Renewal. Today will be less of a conversation and more of a monologue. How unliturgical of us to change things up, am I right? Anyway, as I said, in our last episode, we did our best to break down a somewhat complicated concept of covenant renewal. We did this because it is from the bedrock truth that God is a covenantal God who relates to human beings and his people only on the basis of covenant that leads us to pattern our worship services in certain ways that mirror and mimic that covenantal reality. So now that that groundwork has been laid somewhat firmly underneath of us, we can now move forward with greater confidence to lay out what a biblical liturgy should look like on a Sunday. I'm glad to be at this point, if I'm honest. This is really the day-to-day, week-to-week stuff I get to do for our church, and it's one of the greatest joys of my life to do so. So what we are going to do is start breaking down, element by element, step by step, piece by piece, in order, the liturgy that we practice, and that has been practiced by many a faithful church throughout the ages. But let's start with a caveat first. While we firmly believe that what we practice is deeply biblical, right, and true, I would definitely not say this is the only way you could go about conducting a rich, biblically-informed, gospel-centered, and God-glorifying gathering. To clarify what I do and do not mean by that, there's a couple of helpful insights from two different books. First, in their book, Reformation Worship, Jonathan Gibson and Mark Irgny say this, quote, Despite the inevitable diversity— the magisterial reformers, following Martin Luther's lead, strenuously aimed for unity in the gospel, but liberty and charity in church liturgy. The great reformers Thomas Cranmer and John Calvin both understood the contextual nature of liturgical diversity in reforming the church, and wisely encouraged liberty and charity where necessary. End quote. Secondly, in the book Christian Liturgy, Frank Sen says something similar. Quote, The historical study of liturgy is a probing of changes that have occurred in the service of God, which frees us to make the changes that are needed today. The historical study of liturgy also reminds us of the features of the divine service that have endured and must be maintained today. We are not at liberty to change anything we like. Some texts and practices from the past continue to inform our proclamation and celebration today. These guys understand that based upon context— Overemphasis on specificity or strict adherence to a definite and specific liturgical pattern or set of elements may not serve every church everywhere with the same degree of love and benefit. That is to say, the gospel cannot be abandoned, the word of God needs to be the beginning and the end of all decisions made, and rashly or suddenly changing things at our own whim is to be avoided. There are examples of this in many liturgical studies books, which we may get into as we get into the finer points of each section of the liturgy. But for a quick example, there are some that show where people differ not in something like the necessity of a corporate confession of sin or a call to worship, but rather the order in which they took place. 
depending on the conscience of the pastors over those churches charged with guarding and forming the worship of the church, there was much liberty given, not to taking these important elements out, but to where they went in order of the service. Some preferred or saw fit to open gatherings with a confession, not a call. Others didn't like the idea of an absolution or assurance of pardon being immediately delivered after the confession. I will also say, the fruit of some of these decisions was not seen until much later in the lives of these congregations. Some have had more staying power, I think, based upon their more true adherence to the scriptures and the gospel. It is in those streams which seem to prove more profitable that I would like to stand in, and which my church gleans the most wisdom and insight from for our own liturgical ordering. Okay, moving on. We do need to start at the beginning, but that sort of begs the question, what beginning are we talking about? I would argue that there is something going on even before we begin our service unto the Lord on a Sunday that is the actual beginning. First, Sunday is the Lord's Day, and Sunday gatherings, the covenant renewal ceremony, can also be called the Lord's Service. This phrase, the Lord's Service, is somewhat of a double entendre. In one sense, the Lord's Service means that it is His, it belongs to Him, and we are there to serve and worship Him alone. In another sense, and I don't think we naturally think of worship in this way, it means that the Lord is also serving us. If you remember back to our previous episode, we briefly broke down four common perspectives on what worship is and what worship is for. One of those was the exaltation perspective, or that we are there to worship and exalt God and give Him praise. Well, of course that is true, but it is also incredibly one-sided. This approach assumes that we are only there to give service unto God and not receive any service from Him. Maybe we even cringe at the idea that we might be at church to get something out of it. Like, that is somehow fundamentally wrong. We like to put an emphasis, if not completely tilt the scale over, onto what we are there to do for God. Why is this important? Well, because we are not only called in by God once the liturgy leader gives us the official call to worship— That call to worship is a specific moment where we take time to realize something that has already happened and is presently happening. It's not an invoking of God to now let us into the sanctuary. It is an acknowledgement that we are not here because we are great or because we made a good decision to wake up and go to church today. No, we are only and ever called in by God on His day into His service. This gets at one of the fundamental things we need to understand about liturgy that will help us understand what is going on. Liturgy can be seen through the lens of a back-and-forth dialogue. God speaks or acts, we respond. To begin the Lord's Day with the idea that we are the ones who initiated the conversation is to start the conversation in the wrong place. If we get it wrong at the beginning, the whole order of things is going to be messed up. This reminds me of one of those pranks you see online where people call two Chinese food restaurants on different phones, then they hold the phones close to each other, and let the hilarity unfold as the restaurant workers go back and forth over who called who. Each of them is waiting for the other person to start ordering, but it never happens. The way we often say it and remind the congregation at the beginning of our gatherings is, in the call to worship, God is getting our attention, not the other way around. God is in no danger of forgetting the fact that He is worthy to be praised, that this is the day that He made, and that this is the day that His Son rose from the dead. Again, the danger in getting Sunday worship wrong from the beginning is that we could unknowingly come into the gathering with this weight upon our shoulders, like we need to awaken God, snap our fingers, clap our hands, or do our proverbial song and dance to get His attention. 
This will lead to a totally works-based worship service from start to finish, where we are just hoping we did enough to make God happy, and maybe if we worshiped well enough, He will then give us some sort of blessing. The reality is, God leads the way with a blessing before we even give thought to Him. At best, most of us get up and go to church out of duty or mere repetition. It's just what we do. And while I believe that's better than the alternative, it's totally missing the point. Getting up and going to church isn't just what we do, it's what we do because of what God has done. That simple extra step moves worship from duty to delight, and makes a world of difference in terms of engaging with God on His gracious and merciful terms. I think that we should start thinking of Sundays more in this pattern. God was awake all night while we slept on Saturday evening into Sunday morning. By His grace, He sustained us through the evening, and His Spirit awoke us on Sunday. By His grace, He drew our minds to remember that this is His day, and therefore we are going to gather with the church to worship. He somehow got us all there, which is a grace in and of itself most Sundays, especially if you have a bunch of kids to get out the door. Already with that mindset, you'd be viewing God and worship a lot differently. You'd see that the Lord's service begins even before you have any real intention of worship. God has initiated the entire thing by His grace. The day starts with blessing. This also starts today with the recognition that the entire Trinity is at work to get you into the gathering. The Father awakens you by His Spirit to enter into His presence by the blood of the Son. Just as we may look at the liturgy through the lens of a dialogue, where God initiates the conversation and we respond, we must also see the liturgy as a retelling of the story of the gospel. Simply enough, the gospel does not begin with us. It begins with God. Our salvation does not begin with us. It begins with God. Just as God called us to himself when we weren't even looking for him, so God calls us into worship when we were yet groggy and unsure of what day it even is. As creation begins with God, as salvation begins with God, so our worship begins with God as well. And the opening act of worship is nothing less than God's gracious, merciful, and serving act of calling us into his presence. In light of this, we actually begin our gatherings with three things that could really be seen as one long call to worship. First, we begin with a song or hymn. This is always directed at the attributes of God, His great acts of grace, His mercy, or His blessings. This serves as both a reminder to the congregation that God has already done a great thing in initiating our worship and draws us into the type of God that we are responding to and being called in by. Next, one of our pastors gets up and delivers a formal welcome. This is much more than a, hey everybody, we're just so glad you're here today. Here's specifically what is said, though some take liberties and change things as they see fit for that particular day. To all who are weary and need rest. To all who mourn and long for comfort. To all who feel worthless and wonder if God cares. To all who fail and desire strength. To all who sin and need a savior. To all who hunger and thirst for righteousness. And to whoever else will come, this church opens wide her doors and offers her welcome in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. This is a great juxtaposition between the great God whom we just sang of and the needy creatures we are. We are openly acknowledging that it is the weary, mourning, worthless, failing, sinful, and hungry whom God calls in. This positions the worshiper in the rightful posture of being ready to receive from the Lord and then respond rightly to His grace. Next, we hear an official call to worship, usually from the Psalms. This call to worship is the official declaration from the Word of God itself that gives explicit or implicit commands to worship Him. 
It will give us commands and encouragement to sing, shout, lift our hands, to bless the Lord, and remember His benefits and steadfast love. Other less explicit calls to worship, again, draw us to look at the attributes of God, stand in awe of them, and then respond to Him with a song of praise. Again, notice the dialogical nature of this. God initiates, and we respond. God blesses, so then we bless in return. God commands, then we obey. This back-and-forth conversation cannot be stressed highly enough. It will help you to understand what portions of the gathering are God's service to us and what portions are our service unto Him. It will help us see when we are meant to receive from Him and when we are meant to give unto Him. Side note, as we go about unpacking these pieces of the liturgy, I think it's important that we bear in mind that Sunday worship is something that is happening corporately or as the body of Christ together. It's so easy to slip into an individualist mindset or personal relationship with God posture even in this setting. The Apostle Paul commended to Corinth that all things should be done decently and in order. Apparently, the Corinthian church gatherings were getting a little out of hand with people wanting to pray, speak in tongues, and prophesy, and it was all getting so chaotic that it was not edifying to the church. Part of what was going on there was an overemphasis on the individual who wanted to express themselves wherever and however they wanted to in the gathering. A beautiful aspect of having a definite pattern or liturgy in worship is that it aids to unite the church body in worship as one. Some may think that is cold and rote or inauthentic to put such structures in place. But, as I've said before, C.S. Lewis called the constant itch for novelty in worship the liturgical fidget. Having a definite and predictable pattern in worship does not inhibit worship. It guides it and makes it possible. In fact, I would say overly spontaneous worship actually totally inhibits the church's ability to worship as the unified body of Christ as it should. Lewis equated this to the idea of ballroom dancing, saying, As long as you notice and have to count the steps, you are not dancing, but only learning to dance. He continues, The best liturgy would be one we were almost unaware of our attention would have been on God. But every novelty prevents this. It fixes our attention on the service itself, and thinking about worship is a different thing from worshiping. I can make do with almost any kind of service whatever, if only it would stay put. But if each form is snatched away just when I'm beginning to feel at home in it, then I can never make any progress in the art of worship. You give me no chance to acquire the trained habit. Okay, let's also remember back to the fundamental truth that this is a covenant renewal service or ceremony. God's first act in covenant, as we explained it, is that he takes hold of something or someone. This is what's happening when God calls us in. He is gathering the sheep of his fold into his sanctuary by his hand and taking hold of us. In this, we also see the covenantal act on God's part of separation. God is separating us out from the world as his distinct kingdom of priests and his family. Eugene Peterson said, every call to worship is a call into the real world. That's a powerful statement. We can often think of worship as God calling us to step out of reality for a little while, to pretend everything is okay for an hour and a half before getting sent back out into the, quote, real world. What Peterson is saying is that the real world is the world which remembers that this world belongs to God, that he is eternal, that he is the author and creator, and he alone knows the end from the beginning. The world exists for God, and he alone bends all of history to his will. So, coming into worship is us being called to examine things as they really are in the eyes of God, and as they are under his authority and power. P. 
Peterson also warned us against an overly fluffy or nice view of what places of worship are. We can often invite friends or family in with things like, oh, everyone is so nice, you'll love it here, or come as you are, don't worry about it, there's even coffee and donuts. And as well-meaning as those sentiments are, Eugene says this, Sometimes I think that all religious sites should be posted with signs reading, Beware the God. The places and occasions that people gather to attend to God are dangerous. They're glorious places and occasions, true, but they are also dangerous. Danger signs should be conspicuously placed, as they are at nuclear power stations. Religion is the death of some people. God is as Lewis described Aslan in the Chronicles of Narnia. He's good, but he's not safe. So the God who calls the worshiper in is very, very good, but in no way safe. We should fully expect, upon being called into worship, to have something in our life be radically undone or changed by a powerful God. In other words, no one swaggers into the presence of God. Think of the biblical examples in Scripture that demonstrate God's holiness. Adam and Eve were cast out of the garden, away from the presence of God, because neither sin nor the sinner can be in the presence of a holy God. That set the temperature for the rest of the examples. You have Moses, who had to take off his sandals at the burning bush and turn away from the glory of the Lord as it passed by. You have Isaiah's vision of the glory of God in the temple that he said completely undid him, causing him to see that he was a man of unclean lips, and so was everybody else. Every time a heavenly messenger comes in the New Testament, the initial response is fear, not swag. Perhaps this is another reason why we need the grace of a call to worship. Without it, the best we could possibly do is pretend we are holy enough to enter in, or wallow in shame and fear because we know we aren't. Without God's gracious and reassuring call, we'd be merely presuming upon His grace. We'd either have to raise ourselves up and make ourselves holy enough, or try and dumb God down to a place where He isn't as holy as He actually is. This is why the call is necessary. This is why covenant is necessary. Unless God graciously takes hold of us, we would have no hope of ever being able to take hold of Him. The call to worship, therefore, is a beautiful picture of the gospel. It's God coming down to call us to Himself and bring us in. Just as Christ came down to the lost sheep of Israel to be their shepherd and gather them into His fold, the call shows us the gospel of King Jesus, who is summoning His royal people to His throne. The call to worship is a reminder that just as we only came to the Father through the work of the Son, so we only continue to be able to enter into God's presence because of the cleansing blood of the Son. That's amazing to me. It's not just that the individual pieces of the liturgy share the gospel only when they are all put together. When you really dig into what's going on in each portion, the individual parts are many gospel sermons of their own. It's something like how a flower from the outside is absolutely beautiful, but when you put it under a microscope, the glory of it only magnifies and intensifies. Thanks for listening to this episode of Life in the Liturgy, and we hope it serves you as you aim to glorify and enjoy the Lord. If you haven't done so already, go ahead and subscribe to the podcast and follow us on Instagram or YouTube to be sure to never miss another episode. Until next time, peace be with you.